This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Defense Department has been implementing dozens of reforms to help reduce sexual assault and harassment, but some say they don't go far enough. A new campaign started up this month called Red, White, and Bruised. It asks women in the military community to share their stories of assault and abuse. The campaign is also making specific requests like the resignations of commanders who fail to investigate incidents. Federal News Network's Scott Massioni spoke with Never Alone Advocacy founder Amy Braley Frank and Executive Director of Combat Sexual Assault Lindsay Knapp. So really, it really started as a way to kind of simplify this message so that way we could get the average American to really understand the, the problem of sexual assault in the military. And so like at Combat Sexual Assault and at other, you know, partner organizations, what we're finding is that retaliation for reporting is just, it's, it's on the increase. It's on the rise. Every time the DOD publishes a study, uh, more and more service members are reporting retaliation for reporting. Um, also, the number of reports of sexual assault are, are rising exponentially as well. Uh, the Department of Defense will tell you, though, that that rise is, is great, and that shows that people are comfortable with reporting. However, if that were the case, then we would see the numbers of retaliation plummeting, but that's not what we see. So we're, we're launching this campaign to really to, to bring awareness to this issue and really kind of mobilize our service members, our veterans, make sure that they know that their voice is heard, get them to speak up, stand up, speak out, reach out to the congressional leaders so we can kind of just build this groundswell to finally be heard. Because we are the minority, if you will, and the majority is holding the power and sweeping sexual assault under the rug, not holding their senior leaders accountable when they do that. And until we can get enough support and get enough attention on this issue, we're just not going to make any progress. So what we're trying to do is essentially, you know, ensure that those who failed to properly investigate sexual assault, domestic violence are held accountable, right? Um, that, that senior leaders don't have that capacity to do that. So if a service member comes and says, hey, I was sexually assaulted, um, and the commander says, well, I think that was consensual, I'm, don't worry about it, never sends it to law enforcement, that leader that did that faces no repercussions right now. So no matter who we report that to, if I report that to, you know, the inspector general or the office of special counsel or, you know, through the chain of command, if I report that to, let's say, the National Guard Bureau or, you know, Reserve Command or whoever is the proponent, They'll come back to us and say, no, 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 that, that was totally okay. And when, in fact, that's obstruction of justice, right? And those leaders need to be held accountable for not sending that service member to law enforcement, for looking at them and saying, hey, that was consensual. So Red, White, and Bruised is essentially a campaign that looks at the survivors and the families that are left behind. Because we are having victims of sexual abuse, and domestic violence, and we're seeing an influx of suicides, murder by suicide, and families with no answers. And commanders at the most senior levels are what I would call choreographing obstruction of justice by internal investigations. And when it comes to the actual campaign itself, what are you asking people to do for this campaign? You know, do you have a petition? Are you asking people to share stories? You know, what, what does this campaign entail? So one of the things that we're asking for is for people to share written testimony, uh, voice memos, and if they're comfortable, uh, videos. And if they're not comfortable showing their faces, that they can black out their face, to share it to Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, or Facebook. 
and to tag hashtag red, white, and bruised and to, to continue to share those because what we've seen the Department of Defense do is isolate these issues as what we saw that they did with the murder of Vanessa Guillen, that, that it was localized to Fort Hood. Now with the suicide issue, you know, they're localizing it to Alaska when we know that that it is everywhere, that it is across all installations and service branches. And so we're trying to show the American public that we have a Department of Defense-wide crisis. I mean, even the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Milley, said, you know, that this is fratricide and we're having an issue, but we're still, you know, trying to control and localize the problem. The Department of Defense will have you believe that, that and what what, they, what we hear them saying all the time is, you know, like these are isolated incidents. So one huge part of the campaign is showing, first of all, that it's not isolated. This is happening everywhere in every service branch, in every capacity, guard, reserve, active duty. Um, so, so that's a, a piece. And then we're also asking people to reach out to the congressional leaders. Um, we're asking for an investigation into um, to Fort Bragg, U.S. Army Forces Command, Army Reserve Command, U.S. Army Africa, and the National Guard Bureau for the resignation of um, the Force Comm Commanding General, General Garrett, and the Chief of Staff of the Army, um, General McConville. The passage of the Military Justice Improvement and Increasing Prevention Act, um, which was proposed by Senator Gillibrand, which really in, overhaul how these sexual assault and harassment allegations are reported investigate, and investigated um, we're calling for legislation to be passed that would enable service members and veterans who were injured due to sexual assault or domestic abuse to be able to sue the federal government for accountability, right? Because if, if they were a civilian and they, and um, if I worked at Amazon and I was sexually assaulted while working there and I could show that my manager actively tried to cover it up and didn't follow their own policies or procedures, I could then civilly sue Amazon for damages, thereby giving Amazon a huge incentive to do the right thing. But in the military, no such incentive exists. Congress has had a, a few reforms in this last NDAA where they have changed some of the ways that, that sex crimes are prosecuted in the military. Do you find that these go far enough? What concerns do you have about them and what things do you find positive about them? I think that they have basically, you know, put a wedge in the door. And I think that part of our job um, in being subject matter, matter experts and working in this field is to educate the American public that even though that they have removed some things away, that the judge advocate general, the lawyers in the military, still are rated by the chain of command. So the head army lawyer is still rated by the chief of staff of the army. So they have influence over their careers. And, and that's still part of the problem. There is still influence. Because what they essentially did is, is they, they, they there were some nice things in there, right? Like it, it removes military commanders um, from prosecution decisions for cases including rape, sexual assault, murder, manslaughter, kidnapping. It's also creating um, a punitive article criminalizing sexual harassment in the military. And so, like those things, like they sound really good. You're like, oh yeah, yeah, that's that's what I want. But 
But the problem is, is like when you dig a little bit deeper, they kept in all of these elements that allow them to continually to, to still be able to sweep this under the rug. And and so in one of the ways that they, they can do that is the commander can now is still able to separate a service member in lieu of court martial. So essentially what that means is if they don't want to prosecute this person because they're like, you know what, this is just, I don't, I don't, I would say they just don't believe the victim. They don't like the victim. They think it was consensual, which we see over and over again. We say, you know, we're just going to separate you and essentially just fire the service member, allowing them to just go back now into the civilian world and continue to, you know, sexually assault others because they haven't been held accountable. Lindsay Knapp, executive director of Combat Sexual Assault, and Amy Braley Frank, founder of Never Alone Advocacy, speaking with Federal News Network's Scott Massioni. Check out Scott's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, Welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader, and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person, personally, was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent, and what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, So that was probably the the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, And so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up but also 
reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we meet our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind. Um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that to saying, 
Let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the the art of of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, And I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second. Confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.